Well, after such a, a busy day, we enjoyed some delicious lamb chops that night in Jerusalem. Our heads were, were still whizzing after all the marvellous things we'd seen that day. And after the readings, we shut our eyes, excited about what we're going to see the following day, Lord winning. And after another hearty breakfast the following morning, we, we set off to Jezreel. Now, King Ahab built two magnificent palaces. He had a, a summer palace in Jezreel where Jezebel and her prophets of the grove spent most of their time. And this palace bordered a vineyard, a vineyard that belonged to a man by the name of Naboth. In Ahab's other palace in Samaria, the wicked king kept his high officer's estate with him. And we were off to see Ahab's summer residence, a spectacular building in its day. This is where Jezebel spent much of her time. And as we all know, she was a highly manipulative and cunning woman. So with our Bibles open, let's start then in 1 Kings chapter 21 and remind ourselves a little bit about these distinctive qualities. And I use my words very carefully there of Jezebel. 1 Kings chapter 21, and we see this relationship that she had and the hold she had over Ahab here. 1 Kings 21, verse 25. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. You may have other translations. Certainly the New King James Version has, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. She incited him, other translations have. Now, Jezebel came from Zidon, and this was one of the most important Phoenician cities. She was a princess, the daughter of Ephbaal, the king of Zidon. And it's worth knowing that the Phoenicians were the greatest traders in the ancient world. As far back as 1050 BC, so a good period of time before Elijah comes upon the scene, they had developed the alphabet. They're the first, the first of any to develop an alphabet. And it became one of the most widely used writing systems. And it was spread by Phoenician merchants across the Mediterranean world. So we're being told here that Jezebel would have been schooled in worldly wisdom before she left her native land for Israel, she would have been a formidable woman. And no woman in the Bible is more identified with wickedness and treachery than Jezebel, the queen of Israel. However, the meaning of her name is a little unclear. Most commentators suggest that her name, Jezebel, means unexalted or unhusbanded. And there's a, a message, I believe, behind her name, Jezebel exalted Baal, and she dedicated her life to him. Although she was married to Ahab, the king of Israel, her true love, and we see this so many times, don't we? Her true love and her true devotion lay elsewhere. And with that, then, we're off on our next stop. And the next stop is the palace of Ahab and Jezebel in Jezreel. I was particularly excited to see this palace. If you look at the screen from the slide or from the photo, you can see Mount Gilboa in the background. I hope you can see it. it's rather faint, but there's Mount Gilboa in the background. 
And this is the first thing that strikes you when you're there in Jezreel, just how lush and beautiful everything is. The Hebrew for the word Jezreel means God sows. And this is what God was trying to do through Elijah, to sow his word into the hearts of his people. And one of the things you quickly realize when you're there in the land is that everything is so close. You don't appreciate that when you're reading the Bible stories, just how close these places are to one another. It was here that Saul led a charge against the Philistines. And the battle ends with the king falling on his sword and his sons tragically, including Jonathan being killed in action. So the failure of the first king of Israel is there on open display in Jezreel. And so you'd hope, wouldn't you, that Ahab would reflect on Saul's life. There were so many lessons wrapped up in Saul that Ahab should have been learning from. Now, although Ahab's palace in Jezreel was beautiful, it's now just rubble and overgrown and full of cowards. And this is a a powerful lesson in itself. God's plan continues. And these great kings, however great they are, are all brought to an end in God's own time. This building, Ahab's palace, was discovered by the archaeologists David Yusushin and John Woodhead. And they believe that Jezreel also served as a fortress and where Ahab's cavalry lived. This was his power base, and no doubt it was under the heavy influence of Jezebel. Remember, Let's just remind ourselves again, because it's such an important verse, isn't it? Come back to chapter 18 and verse 4. It was there, wasn't it, in Jezreel, that Jezebel was the one who was instructing her soldiers to cut off the prophets of the Lord, to cut off, to destroy the prophets of Yahweh. Perhaps she gave instructions to the army here to destroy God's faithful prophets. But even in the rubble, you get a real sense of how grand and stylish this planet, this this palace was in its day. It's quite amazing, actually, that the fact that this site is 3000 years old shouldn't be forgotten. As you as you walk around, you see great wells or cisterns that provided water, running water throughout the palace. And and there are large baths that the kind of bathrooms you'd see, you'd expect to see in bath today built by the ancient Romans. And the palace was grand and opulent with all modern facilities and creature comforts. Ahab and Jezebel clearly lived very well. And we can understand why they didn't like getting disturbed by Elijah. The other amazing archeological discovery is the very wall that Jezebel was thrown off. This is where she put her makeup on, fixed her hair, and waited for Jehu by the window. I'm sure you know 2 Kings chapter 9. And and we've seen the very wall that she was thrown off. What you might not know, that sitting at a window is also very significant. Several archaeological discoveries have been found of the goddess Asherah, the, the woman, the goddess that Jezebel worshipped, Baal's female companion. And there's so many of these archaeological finds of Asherah looking out of the window. You you can see this one in the Israel Museum on the screen. And this is dated back to the time of Ahab. 
And so Queen Jezebel would know all about this pose. There's one in the British Museum also. In fact, we, we took Hall Green CYC to the museum just a few years ago when, and we saw this. Jezebel, not only sitting as a queen, but as the goddess she worshipped, Asherah. And that's the one that we saw in the museum in Israel. And, and many of these have been found all over the land. It was a, a common pose. She knew exactly what she was doing to Jezebel. And the fact that Jezebel was tossed out of the window takes on then a, a very special meaning. Asherah, the goddess she worshipped and represented, was going to come to an end. There's Asherah in the window and she's thrown out of the window. And so the goddess that Jezebel worships, both she and her goddess were going to come to a miserable end. And as we know, this was going to be the instruction of Elijah at Mount Horeb when, when God was going to tell him uh, through the still small voice that the work would continue through Jehu and Hazael and, and Elisha. And collectively, those four individuals with Elijah would bring an end to the Omri family. Now also I want to bring your attention to this, and I thought this was rather fascinating. Recent excavations on, on Ahab's palace in Jezreel has found a, an ancient winery which has been cut into the limestone bedrock. Uh, you can see on the screen that the winery insulation, it has a, a treading floor. You, you can see that at the forefront. That's another functional pits. But the point of all this is that it's right next to the palace. And the conclusion is that this is Naboth's vineyard. Now, not only is it exciting that scripture proves to be true, of course, we're all delighted about that, but it's no surprise. But for me, what was striking about this vineyard is just how small it is. I want you to look at the screen. Everything that you can see on the screen Ahab owned. Everything that you see on the screen, Ahab owned, except for that little small patch of land. His greed and his pride got the better of him, and he, he ends up losing his life over something so, so little and so insignificant. Yet, I wouldn't have known this if we hadn't seen it with our own eyes. So, and this makes such a powerful lesson, doesn't it? Not contented with everything he had. He had two beautiful palaces, one in Samaria and one in Jezreel. He still wanted more. And there's a big lesson, isn't there? Being content with the things that we have. Naboth was one of the faithful 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Remember that? Elijah was going to hear that, wasn't he? He was going to hear that from the words of God at Mount Horeb. Yet if you look carefully, Naboth only says one thing. Did you know that? Shall we have a look? 1 Kings chapter 21. This very faithful man. And it's found in verse 3. This is all that he says. 1 Kings 21 and verse 3. The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers. That's all he says. And although his land bordered the palace grounds, he was unshakable. The word of God directed his conduct. I don't know whether you've ever thought about Naboth being an incredible type of Christ. Now, if I was going to tell you, um, I'm going to talk about a type of Christ, a, a powerful type of Christ, I'm sure most of you would expect me to talk about, say, Joseph. 
But Naboth, if you look at the table there, is an amazing type of Christ. Just, just, just go through the column here. He had a fruitful vineyard. He suffered at the hand of those who desired their inheritance. He was tempted to part with his inheritance, but he refused. He respected the commandments of the father. He was betrayed by familiar friends. He was initially lauded by the people. I'm sure you know about that. Know the story here. He was falsely accused by those who sought his death. He was charged with blaspheming God and the king. He was silent when he was accused of sin. He was put to death by violent hands and slain outside the city. The murderers were charged and the perpetrators were ultimately destroyed by divine judgment. Isn't that amazing, brothers and sisters, young people, friends, that the, the striking parallels between Naboth and the Lord Jesus Christ, yet he only says one word or one phrase. Yet in this little vineyard, this little vineyard that we've seen, that, Nab that, that, that was adjacent to the palace of Jezreel, we have this lovely, lovely man, this faithful man. And when we think about this, we should ask ourselves something, shouldn't we? Are we men and women of principle who regard the word of God as binding, regardless of the, the pressure that is placed upon us? Think of Naboth. God's word prevented Naboth from selling the land, and he was ready to stand up to anyone, even the king, to obey the command from God. And so here Naboth provides us with a, with a model example of letting the word of the Lord, remember? That phrase that compels Elijah to go from one place to the other. Well, here we have another example of letting the word of the Lord be our guide in every matter of life. What a wonderful man, the man Naboth. Well, we know that it was Jezebel, wasn't it, who ensured that faithful Naboth was killed. We're, we're there in, well, we're just um, there near 20 and 21. Let's have a look at chapter 21 and let's pick up in verse 7 here. So there's Ahab, and he's all frustrated because Naboth's not going to sell him the vineyard. And, and Jezebel comes in and says these words. And Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. What confidence. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. So Jezebel wrote letters. She, she wrote letters here in Ahab's name, but she does something else, doesn't she? If you come back to chapter 19, she does something else, doesn't she? Remember when, when Elijah was waiting at the, pa uh, the palace of Jezreel there and Jezebel sends that message to Elijah and, and he runs for his life. Another time when the word of the Lord doesn't come to him. But look at this uh, here in verse two. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So she's going to take Elijah's life in a day and she sends a letter in advance to inform Elijah that he's going to die. So this is a queen who likes to write letters. Now, the reason why I stress this, that in 1964, the well-known archaeologist, Nahman Avigad, found a seal engraved with the name YZBL in ancient Hebrew. 
and it's believed to belong to Queen Jezebel. So what you see on the left-hand side is the seal, and on the right is a clay imprint so that you can see roughly what that seal looks like. And it's believed, the authorities in Israel believe, that this seal, and it's dated 900 BC, belongs to Queen Jezebel. Now, I just want to give a bit of a, um, a side story here. We're, we're, we're there in Jezreel, aren't we, looking around Ahab's palace, but I just want to stop now and close your eyes, and I want you to imagine what we did the night before, because when we got back to Jerusalem, we visited the Israel Museum after a day on the road, and you've seen that day, and, and I'm sure you've heard about the Israel Museum. This is the, the place where the, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, can be seen in the Shrine of the Book. And, and yes, we were amazed to see the Isaiah scroll, a complete scroll of the whole book of Isaiah. It was amazing, and I loved seeing it. And so did Luke. But what I was desperate to see was Jezebel's seal. The, the trouble was, no one in the museum seemed to have heard of it. When we arrived in the reception, I asked, can you tell me where Jezebel's seal is? And a lady in her late 60s, sitting behind the front desk, looked at me curiously and replied, sorry, never heard of it. And then I counted, please, I've only got a few hours. I've traveled all the way from England to see Jezebel's seal. Can you help me, please? And then she looked at her colleague and asked, have you heard of this seal? And the other lady shrugged her shoulder. Sorry, she said, I can't help you. Well, I'm not sure what quite possessed me, and still now I don't know why I did it, but I leaned over, I took this lady by the hand, and I said reassuringly, you need to come with me. And we started racing together around the museum in search of the lost seal. And eventually we found the seal. In fact, it was Luke who, who found it for us. And I was so happy, I started to take photographs. And, and I turned to the lady whilst I was taking these photos, and I said, sorry, I, I should have told you, I'm Christadelphian. And I'm doing a Bible project on Elijah. And this is Jezebel's seal. And she looked at the seal and said, that's amazing. I will make sure that this is part of the official tour next time. And then she looked at me and said, let me introduce myself. I am Professor Dina, one of the main curators of the museum. And experts make the following observations about this seal. It's in a Phoenician style rather than Hebrew. It has typical Phoenician imagery. It has Egyptian motifs. It's unusually large. It's remarkably ornate. And it's fitting, especially for a, a prominent woman. We know that it was a female owner, or it had a female owner. And, and, and this point is, is quite important because it's exceptionally rare because thousands of seals have been found all over Israel, but they're all male. There's only a dozen seals or so that have been made for women or those that have been discovered that have been made for women. So it's very rare. And it is a script that fits with 900 BC. And the inscription says, belonging to Jezebel. And so it was so lovely that the next time I visited the museum, I was able to go with Lindsay and the children and and here's a, a photo of us as a family looking closely at the seal with the magnifying glasses. And, and Professor Dina and her husband gave us a, a personal tour around the museum and a, a private viewing of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And since then, we've become good friends and we regularly keep in touch. But one artifact that caught my eye was this stone altar from about this time, maybe a little earlier. 
And if you look carefully at the screen, you will see in the right-hand corner a snake symbol. I hope you can see that. And if you look more closely, you can see the snake. The snake is a fertility symbol, and it's engraved on one of the blocks. This was a symbol of Baal and Asherah. Now, with those thoughts, have a look at 1 Kings chapter 18. We're back on Carmel, but I want to highlight something for you here. 1 Kings chapter 18. And, and when the prophets of Baal started to uh, dance and sing and cut themselves around the altar, look what it says there at the end of verse 26, the altar, the altar which they had. So the end of verse 26 I've got in 1 Kings 18. And these false prophets of Baal, they leapt upon the altar which was made. Some of you may have which they had made. That The scriptures are emphasizing that this is a, an altar which was made. And all over Israel, they made these altars. The, the altars of Yahweh were abandoned and destroyed. And the altars of Baal and Asherah were constructed, particularly on high mountains. And the scriptures are clear that the false prophets of Baal made their own altars. And, and these all over Israel, especially in the northern kingdom. And, and it looks like that they found one of them in the Israel Museum today. And many Baals have been discovered all over Israel. Baal, the storm god, what was first worshipped by the Canaanites. And here he is, if you look carefully, he's holding a bolt of lightning in his hand. Although this didn't help him when the prophets of Baal were calling upon him to, to drop a flash of lightning and light up the sacrifice. And here's Baal with his companion, Asherah. And here's an Asherah idol. And these are little figurines like little Asherahs found all over the land. And here we have even more Asherahs. They've got a huge supply in the Israel Museum. And this is the largest statue of Baal ever discovered in Israel. And it's believed to have belonged to, to, to one of the false temples. In fact, in one of their holy of holies. What an abomination. And this was here. And if you were a Baal worshipper, you would make a tiny house for your little Baal and your little Asherah. And you would put them away at night when you went to bed like dolls. And there's lots and lots of these houses that are there in the Israel Museum. And this is also interesting. This was discovered just in 2017 and, and, and was found in northern Israel, in Samaria. It's dated 900 BC at the time of Elijah, and it's a figure of a distinguished man. And it's in incredible condition, as you can see, and, and many experts believe that it depicts King Ahab. And it was in the, in the museum's main display when we visited, and they were rather proud that they had found this. But returning to where we were before, remember, before we, we kind of thought about the night before, where were we? We were in Jezreel, in that palace, walking around the ruins. Well, what I want to do now, I want to look over the road from the palace, over the road across the hill in the Jezreel Valley, near to the town called Aphala, and one of the most significant archaeological finds has ever been. It's called Tel Megiddo. Tel Megiddo. And it was a, a city with impressive walls 5,000 years ago. 1,000 years later, it fell under the Egyptian rule. And then the, the Canaanites conquered the city, followed by King David. And, and this was a place that King David occupied. 
and King Solomon refortified the city. But it reached the height of its power, it's believed, under Ahab. This became Ahab's place, just over the road from his palace in Jezreel. And Megiddo was a fortified chariot city. I want you just to think about this. King Solomon, in all his greatness, he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. 1,400 chariots and 1,200 horses. But King Ahab used 2,000 chariots in the battle against the Assyrian King Shalmaneser. Isn't that amazing? Even in the battle, he had more chariots than King Solomon in all his glory. And there are five stables in this complex, as well as 12 in the northern complex, with a, a total of 450 horses or more. And, and some believe that King Ahab built this place. So this is where Ahab kept his stallions. And you can see the remains of the large troughs. And history tells us that Ahab joined a, a coalition of 12 kings to stop Shalmaneser of Assyria. And he was able to provide more chariots than any other. 2,000, we said. He was a king of substantial means. So this is where Ahab kept his cavalry. This was his power base. And the water was supplied by great systems. And it's believed that Ahab built these great wells. And these photos show you just how advanced this building under Ahab really was. Ahab was an engineering genius. He built the great city of Damascus, as well as a palace in Jezreel, and an extravagant ivory palace in Samaria and several other cities. And here's a short video of the bottom of the system. And you get a size of its size as we walked across. And, and this system was going to provide water for all the, ho the horses and for the army and for Ahab and Jezebel and their guests. Ahab was a very impressive man of the world. He, he's not a fool like sometimes we think. Elijah wasn't dealing with an idiot. Ahab was an imposing and intimidating historical figure, yet God helped Elijah rise to the challenge. And after dealing with Ahab over Naboth's vineyard, Elijah disappears for a time. And it's, it's worth noting, I don't know if you've ever tried to compute the time between the time of his vineyard and the time he appears again with Elisha on their last journey together. But I've computed that it must have been at least seven years. And this is a beautiful picture of servitude. Elisha quietly serving Elisha for all this time. These two men had become inseparable companions. Wherever Elijah went, Elisha followed, faithful as his own shadow. And this certainly makes me think about my own discipleship in following Jesus. Am I as devoted and committed as this man? Are you? 
Well, we now want to go to the end of Elijah's journey and he begins his last journey. I'm sure you remember. Can you remember? He begins his last journey from Gilgal. Shall we have a look at 2 Kings chapter 2? It's a journey that he's going to cover in a day and it's some 30 miles. And he's going to cover this journey with Elisha, a man who would be given the power to advance Elijah's work. And on this day, Elijah would go and visit the various schools of the prophets to, to encourage them to continue in his absence. And so it would be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus performed many astonishing miracles like Elijah, greater than Elijah, during his ministry. However, it was still essential for Jesus to spend time with his disciples to, to prepare them for the preaching of the gospel after he had risen from the dead. So, Again, another powerful parallel there. Well, when we come to 2 Kings chapter 2, I just want you to notice this journey. So if you look at verse 1, the journey begins in Gilgal. That's where it all begins. There's something very important about Gilgal, and we're going to look at that in a moment. And then he goes to Bethel in verse 3. Verse 4, he goes to Jericho. And then finally, at the conclusion of his journey, he arrives at Jordan. I don't know if you've looked at this journey, but right at the beginning of the journey, we have a little bit of a problem. I want you to notice what it says at the end of verse two. It's very simple what it says, but the Bible says, so Elijah and Elisha, they go down to Bethel. So it's telling us there that they begin in Gilgal at the end of verse one, and at the end of verse two, they go down to Bethel. So, so it's telling us that Elijah and Elisha, they, they leave Gilgal and they go all the way down to Bethel. But that's the problem. Because the Gilgal that we know in Scripture, the Gilgal of Joshua is in the lowlands of Jordan. And we went and we visited it. But Bethel is 3,000 feet above the plain. The Bible's wrong here. It could not have been this place. You can't go down to Bethel from Gilgal. Surely the Bible's got it wrong. Well, of course, the Bible never has anything wrong. And what I want to do, I want to suggest something to you. I want to suggest that Gilgal, Gilgal is not a specific place, but a common name for a camp or a religious site. And this is really exciting. Before we show you some archaeological finds, let, let's just get some scriptures in our heads. I want you to remember what God told Abraham about the land, a land that was in, going to be his inheritance. God tells Abraham, arise, walk through the land in the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. So, so though Abraham would not immediately inherit the land, that the land was promised to him. He would be raised from the ground to inherit the land. We all know that. But he's going to walk around that land. And the walking around that land symbolized legal ownership. That's why he was commanded to go around the land, because that was his land. He will inherit it in the future. But by walking around the land, that was his land. God had given it to him. Now, this is really fascinating with these thoughts in mind, because recent archaeological discoveries suggest that as the Israelites took possession of the land under Joshua, they built several structures that resembled a large footprint or sandal. 
And these were massive formations. They, they measure over 200 feet or, or 70 meters wide. And they're referred to by the archaeologists as the footprints of God. I'm going to show you one of those in a moment. And these circles or stones are also a, a visible representation of the meaning of the name Gilgal. That the name Gilgal simply means a heap of stones or a, a circle of stones. And six such Gilgals have been found to this day. And so then, I believe, it's one of these Gilgals that Elijah left and he went down to Bethel. Remember what God told the children of Israel before they entered the land under Moses. We, we thought about the land that was promised to Abraham. Now the instructions as they go into the land. What does Moses tell them? Every place where on the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Every place where on the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. And the Hebrew expression that's translated tread here speaks of setting one's foot down upon the ground to take ownership. It's the same idea. Legal ownership. Now, returning to Mayer. Mayer told us that he wanted to take us to one of the Gilgals, one of the Gilgals that he believed was the Gilgal of Elijah. And so we jump into his four by four. The sat-nav was switched off and we didn't know where we were going. And after driving over some very rough terrain, he hit the brakes and he told us to get out. And he pointed to a hill and said we needed to climb it. But the two of us weren't too enthusiastic, but Mayer insisted. And so we got out and we climbed. And we climbed until Mayer told us to stop. And then he said, turn round and look and asked us the question, what do you see? Well, we weren't quite sure what we saw at first, but then it became clear. We were looking at semicircles of stones, like huge footprints in the ground. And Mayer called them the sandals of God. And just at that moment, a Bedouin shepherd came down the mountainside on a donkey, herding his sheep. It was like we were being taken back in time to Elijah. It was an incredible scene. And so we got back into the car and we drove on towards Jordan. I'm sure many of you have visited Jordan. Today, this spot is called Khazar al-Yahud. And it's especially important because this was the spot where it's believed that the Lord Jesus was baptized and where the Holy Spirit descended from heaven in the shape of a dove. It is also believed to be where Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. And this was the place where Elijah and Elisha crossed over, where the water was parted and then after taken up into a whirlwind was Elijah. Now, today, the government controls the amount of water that flows into the Jordan. In the past, the width of the Jordan has differed at, at certain times of the year, and, and it can be as wide as over a mile. So it would have been a vast expanse of water, and it would have been a, an incredibly dramatic miracle to walk across. Don't, don't um, be unimpressed by the amount of water that you see on the screens during the thawing the width of the river would have been over a mile. And as you look at this river, I want you all to look at this river. 
And I want you to imagine this water's life because there was a, a very powerful message that was being made here with Elijah and Elisha. This remarkable river begins in the lower slopes of the, the 10,000 foot peaks of Mount Hermon in the, the northernmost part of Israel. And then it flows over 200 miles to the 1,200 foot depths of the Dead Sea, the lowest point on the earth. And it's helpful to visualize the river emptying itself into the Dead Sea, the, the Sea of Death. And how appropriate then that the name Jordan, which I'm sure you all know, means descender, gradually descending from life to death, a vivid and powerful reminder that all are subject to the curse from the garden, dying thou shalt die. And with Elijah parting the waters, we see him as a, a beautiful type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord passed from death to life, being the, the first fruits of them that slept. He has made his way through death and, and provided a safe way for us and the blessing for all those that follow Jesus by being baptized into his death is the promise of newness of life. And it was here at this very spot that John the Baptist would say of his successor, the Lord Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. So too here. Elijah must now decrease, and Elisha must increase. And it was a lovely moment to think that we were possibly standing close to where Jesus stood, and where the children of Israel passed over, and where these dramatic moments took place in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And so then I made sure that I got my family there a little later that year. God bless us, and we got back there again as a as a family. And here's also a, a photo with my lovely wife, Sister Lindsay. And I was so happy to take Lindsay and the children there and to experience what we experienced earlier. Now, the final stop of our whirlwind tour of Elijah's life takes us back to Jerusalem, into the Herbert Synagogue. And this is a fascinating place. And the reason we're going to go there is that I want to show you the chair of Elijah. Now, this is a very important synagogue. From 1864, when it was built, the Herber Synagogue has been considered to be the most beautiful and important synagogue in the whole land of Israel. Twice it's been destroyed and twice it's been rebuilt. And it's a symbol of the Jewish people's determination to return to a land promised to their forefathers. There's something incredibly symbolic about the Herber Synagogue. And as Luke and I sat in the most important synagogue in Israel, we observed quietly a service. And it was clear that Elijah's chair is the most prominent piece of furniture in the whole synagogue. In Jewish ceremonies, I don't know if you know anything about the, the, the Elijah chair, but in Jewish ceremonies, an unoccupied seat is reserved for the prophet Elijah just in case he arrives unannounced. So he can come down and sit with them. And right at the front, here is the chair with clothes ready for Elijah to put on. And the belief is that given that this is the most important synagogue in all of Israel, the most important synagogue in all the world, if Elijah is going to reveal himself in Jerusalem or to the Jews, then it just has to be this synagogue. That's what they believe. 
And you can see from the clothes, they believe he's going to exchange his girdle of leather for the clothes that they've prepared for him. And it was very kind that the rabbi allowed us to take these photos. And so I got talking to the rabbi. And we got talking about the international situation. I found him very friendly. And so I asked to the rabbi, who are your most trusted friends around the world? Who do you look to for support? Trump, the rabbi said with a smile. Donald Trump. And then he added, also Vladimir Putin. Now, of course, Donald Trump is much loved in Israel because he openly supports the nation and has moved the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We all know that. But Vladimir Putin is not so obvious. Many times, Mr. Putin has said that he owes much to the Jewish family he lived next door to when growing up. Often he would return home to an empty house after school. And so he would go around next door and he'd have his dinner, a hot dinner, with a Jewish family that lived as neighbours. There are one million Russian Jews today living in the land. And there are 200,000 Jews in Russia, which means that Putin sees Israel as another home for the Russian people. With the rabbi, I mentioned Ezekiel 38. But the rabbi told me that Babylon has already fulfilled the prophecy of Ezekiel 38, that Babylon was the goad that came down against Jerusalem with Nebuchadnezzar. So the Herva synagogue and the Jewish leaders are not expecting any sudden moves from Russia. And so this is where we will conclude our whirlwind tour of Israel following in the footsteps of Elijah. And what have we learned together? Well, hopefully we've learned something. Hopefully we've seen that the events of Elijah are entirely true, that the scriptures accurately record the facts of this great man. Elijah was a, a tremendous man of faith. He was a man just like us. James 5 says that's a man just like us. He had highs and lows, moments of happiness and moments of major disappointment. But we've also seen at the end of this talk that there is an early spiritual awakening in Jerusalem. But the scales still need to fall off the eyes of the nation of Israel. They still need to weep over him whom they pierced. Elijah, this amazing man, he lived in an era 3,000 years ago, an era of false worship. When, when immorality was widespread and the, the prophets of Yahweh were destroyed, yet he bore his name fearlessly. My God is Yahweh. Like Israel of old, we too have a, a simple choice to make. Who is our God? As disciples of Christ, the challenge is clear. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Have we lost our faith in God? How long will we hold between two opinions? Can we not learn from the man who was just like us? And so when we went to Jerusalem, this was a picture that the girls did. And I want to conclude our talk together with this picture, the picture of Jerusalem. There are so many things going on in the world. 
so many signs of Christ's return. But let's make sure that we are focusing on the land. That we're focusing on being with Christ for all eternity. And, and that's what our heart's desire is. And we want nothing more than that. That's all that we want, to be with Christ forevermore in the land of Israel. Today, we are more than ever in need of Elijah-like characters who are not anxious to live fearlessly as they walk with God. As we journey to the kingdom through a world darkened by the, the shadows of wickedness, may we to embrace the spirit of Elijah. May we learn to walk in separateness from the world and in complete service to our God while waiting for our Lord to return in power and great glory. And we pray that he might come soon. Mm -hmm.